I want to welcome everyone for coming to our event, How Blasphemy Laws Silence Speech and Destroy Lives. This is a very important issue when it comes to freedom of speech, to religious liberty, and to the uh, operation of democracy in terms of uh, you know, liberal political systems and how we handle you know, complaints over you know, religious uh, persecution and religious practice. There are a number of countries around the world in which religious liberty is uh, under siege. One of the ways that it has been attacked is uh, through essentially weaponizing blasphemy laws, which are used against uh, all faiths, uh, but very often target uh, minority faiths, people who are already vulnerable within societies where a majority of people you know, have you know, another faith. Uh, blasphemy prosecutions are unique in many ways. In fact, in some cases, they're is a presumption of guilt. Uh, judges and courts will not even repeat the words used. We also see very often violence that is associated with this, people who are killed before coming to trial, attorneys who are killed handling such cases. And you know, what we see then is this is an attack, as I mentioned, uh, on many aspects, not just religious liberty for the individual, but brought more broadly within a society, but uh, free speech uh, beyond that, as well as democratic practices. So the question then is what to do about this. I mean, there is some hope. We see at some points people recognize the problem. A couple of days ago in Pakistan, a accusation was made in the uh, you know, city of uh, Peshawar about an alleged uh, you know, blasphemy of a Muhammad's name being placed on the sole of, uh, of, of a shoe. Uh, and the people were charged, the shop was closed, but then a fatwa was issued a couple of days later, indicating the importance of not making uh, erroneous, not making false blasphemy charges. It noted that the all it was was a design, that it was not the, you know, the prophet's name. You know, that there at least uh, someone stepped in in religious authority and indicated that this was not a proper charge because these charges are very often used to essentially destroy lives. But uh, this is one instance and not nearly enough, given the problem of these laws. To discuss this issue, we have a, a very fine panel. Very pleased. You can uh, read uh, the, uh, the names on uh, our website. If you want more in the biography on the website, but just uh, very quickly, uh, we have Joel Fiss, who is a human rights activist and a researcher. As a member of the Geneva Parliament, uh, she has worked uh, now with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe has written a lot on these issues, co-wrote a study on blasphemy for the U.S. Commission on International Religious uh, Liberty, she, or Freedom, and she was joined in this by Jocelyn Getgen Kestenbaum. I might be getting that name wrong, but uh, Jocelyn is not with us, but was co-author and associate professor at Cardoza you know, Law School. You know, a very good study, one that I have cited and, and gone to. We have the URL up on our website. I encourage everyone interested in this issue Please get that report. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful discussion of a very difficult issue. We also have uh, with us Marvi Sermud uh, from Pakistan. Uh, she is a, a journalist, a, a political commentator, uh, an activist on human rights, and somebody who's paid a very high personal price. We in the United States can talk about these issues. We live very secure, very uh, you know, protected lives. She has been personally attacked, physically shot at, and she's had her home invaded. And, you know, this, so we see kind of where these laws lead. She is somebody who's paid a very real price standing up for, you know, people who are victimized by these laws. While Joelle is going to talk broadly about the issue, Marvi's going to focus on Pakistan, which is, you know, perhaps the most problematic uh, state and an issue that uh, she can discuss, uh, again, the in, impact on democratic practices, as well as individuals. And then we go to Mustafa Akyol. I'm proud to call a, a colleague of mine here at the Cato Institute. He's a senior fellow with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He is a, a journalist from Turkey. He's somebody who has stood up for democracy, and that has been increasingly difficult uh, you know, in Turkey. We're very glad to have him with us, though we wish that uh, you know, Turkey was a more hospitable climate you know, these days. He has also written, you know, very uh, you know, elegantly and uh, on issues of liberalism and uh, you know, Islam, you know, a very fine book, Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty. I think a very important book. It's very easy for Westerners of different faiths to say that Islam should be one thing or another. 
It's extraordinarily important to have somebody who is a Muslim within the Islamic faith talking about these issues and looking at how one uh, you know kind of deals with them. And he's also paid a bit of a price. He, uh, he was arrested by the religious police in Malaysia when he came to speak about his book, and it was not appreciated. Thankfully, he was quickly released. But this, again, shows these kind of issues we're dealing with, that even very responsible, non-blasphemous treatment of these issues, that dealing with these difficult issues can be a problem. Where uh, each of them is going to speak for uh, you know, eight to ten minutes, then we'll move to your uh, questions. We'd love to have your questions. You can put them up on Twitter. We're going by hashtag Cato Events on Facebook, on YouTube, you know, and we will pick from those. Uh, you know, and we might not get to all of them. We hope that you will uh, understand that. But we look forward to a very good exchange. So, uh, Joelle, would you like to start us off? <clears throat> Yes, thank you very much, Doug. And I would like to, you know, express my warm thanks to, to the Cato Institute and Mustafa um, Akyal in particular for inviting me to this event. It's an honor to speak to you all. Um, as, as Doug mentioned, this uh, research took two years to accomplish. It was the, uh, the result of a great collaboration between myself and the Human Rights Law Clinic at Cardozo, Cardozo Law School. And nothing would have been possible without my uh, co-author, Jocelyn uh, Getgen, as, as was mentioned. And of course, nothing would have been possible either without Elizabeth Cassidy and Kirsten Lavery from the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. So thanks to all of, uh, all of this team, you know, because it was really a teamwork. Now, what did we try to do? We, we really tried to produce a snapshot in, a, a snapshot in time, basically, uh, to capture states across the, the globe and how they enforce blasphemy laws within their country during a five-year period between 2014 and 2018. And so we literally examined every single state action across 84 countries where we recorded blasphemy legislation and we inspected all the different kinds of state agents. So I'm speaking about police officers, security agents, prison officials, uh, prosecutors and judges, uh, basically all state and judicial authorities. And we found a treasure of findings. And unfortunately, <laughs> I'll only be able to highlight a few of them, but I hope that it will be interesting enough for you to be able to pick up the report and as Doug very warmly recommended uh, for you to read. So just some general remarks before getting into an, uh, the, the statistics and maybe overwhelming you with a, a bit of you know figures. It's important, first of all, to know that all of these uh, criminal blasphemy cases occur in the context of broader religious freedom violations. So that's very important to, to acknowledge. You know, you have all sorts of different freedom of religion or belief violations, such as bombings, assaults on places of worship, uh, desecration of religious sites and, uh, or symbols, hate crimes against uh, individuals, um, other types of, you know, assaults, hate speech, harassment, verbal attacks, discrimination, etc. And you can't isolate blasphemy-related blasphemy incidents from these other events in a country, notably, you know, general, broader situations of violation of freedom of belief. Now, another important point is that we noticed during the course of our study that there are different ways to enforce uh, criminal blasphemy laws. Uh, not only the laws themselves, but also through uh, the enforcement of other laws, such as apostasy laws, anti-conversion laws, incitement to religious hatred laws, anti-extremism laws, and even anti-witchcraft laws, we discovered. So basically, these sort of allegations, blasphemy allegations, often are conflated with other forms of allegations as well, and that's important to, to bear in mind. Uh, another important point that we immediately sort of discovered was that in both cases where states enforce or don't enforce the law, mobs can provoke a lot of violence and threats and, and, uh, and injuries and death. And so, for example, I'm just going to give you one example. You know, some incidents within this study could not even be recorded. Uh, I'm thinking about, for example, um, the attack against the French satirical paper Charlie Hebdo in 2015. Uh, why didn't we record this event, uh, even if it fits the timeline? Because France doesn't have a blasphemy law, okay? So we only recorded, in a rather conservative way, um, all the events that pertained 
uh, to a country in which there was an existing blasphemy law during that time frame. So that's an important for you to to understand that, you know, this study is just conservative and the tip of the iceberg. And there may be many more incidents that are not necessarily recorded. So what did we find? So we found, first of all, in in the in the five year time frame, we found 732 reported incidents and out of those in 674 uh, times, the state directly enforced the criminal law itself. And um, in the other rest of the times, in 58 times, uh, mobs were taking justice into their own hands. Now, what is very interesting is that 81% of all the cases that we recorded were actually uh, identified in 10 states, which means that there is a great amount of concentration of blasphemy cases in 10 specific uh, countries. And that is Pakistan, first of all, Iran, Russia, India, Egypt, Indonesia, Yemen, Bangladesh, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. Okay. And in, in, within that, actually Pakistan accounts for over a quarter of all the cases in the world during that five year period. Okay. So that is uh, 20, 27% or 184 cases out of all of them. And uh, we also noticed that there were regional patterns, the Asia Pacific and the Middle East regions were the two regions that accounted for 84% of the world's enforcement of all the laws. So that was an important finding. And a, a huge other finding was that the instances of violence, um, the incidents of mob activity, violence, threats, with or without state enforcement, took place in nearly in 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 nearly 80% of all the incidents in only four countries. So the four countries where is there is a huge um, concentration of violence are in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nigeria, and Egypt. Okay. And finally, another phenomenon was that 75% of all reported cases and incidents were found in countries where Islam is the state's religion. That's also an important finding. Um, a few words about the phenomenon of mob violence. So it's important to bear in mind that violence can occur when the state enforces the law, but also when the state doesn't enforce the law. And when the state doesn't enforce the law, mobs, uh, you know, uh, uh, are stirred and and they take justice in their own hands. And the fact that de the public officials actually tolerate this means that you know they're responsible by omission because they do tolerate uh, this civil unrest. We found scores of incidents. We found 136 incidents in total, and that's a very conservative estimate because we actually excluded all sorts of forms of political protests where blasphemy is often uh, used uh, within the political protests. Uh, the reason why we didn't include them is because sometimes there was blasphemy was invoked, sometimes there were casualties, it was very hard to keep track on, you know, which, uh, uh, which protest involved specifically, you know, blasphemy uh, discussions or not, and also it was very hard to pinpoint the number of casualties. So we actually, you know, we have 136 incidents without all of these political protests, and believe me, there were many during the course of the five years. Um, in 78 times, the state was already enforcing the law through formal proceedings, but mob violence still occurred. And in 58 times, uh, the law was not formally enforced, but the individuals took justice into their own hands. Now, I'd like to say a few words about the victims. Who are they? Now, uh, we try, we, we found around, we tracked around, um, half the cases, uh, the religion or belief uh, identity of the individual, okay, and in in those kind in those cases, uh, Muslims accounted for fifty six percent of the persons arrested, uh, and or punished or prosecuted, and the Shia group were the largest group among the Muslims. It's very important information because it shows that Muslims are the prime victims of these allegations, and so that this is not some form of Western agenda as sometimes it's portrayed. 
um, in in the world, you know, when people say that Western states are, you know, focusing too much on blasphemy allegations, it's a, it's a, it's an expression of Islamophobia, etc. It's not true. We found through the facts that 56 percent of all victims are Muslims, so they are the large majority. Other groups who are frequently targeted for criminal blasphemy law enforcement are Christians, 25 percent, atheists, 7 percent. Baha'i, 7%, Hindu, 3%. But that is only what we managed to find, you know. So once again, there are many cases that I'm sure go unreported, but also the religious identity of the victims or the alleged blasphemers uh, are not always reported in the media. So this is only through what we managed to find. What are the professions of these people? We managed to identify the professions in 61% of the cases. And the professions were very varied. However, we did notice some trends and patterns that are important. Now, often uh, uh, the, the following professions are accused. So we have lawyers, academics, religious figures, the media, artists, politicians or government officials, and human rights activists. And many of these can also be political dissidents in their own right whether they are artists or bloggers or intellectuals or others. Uh, we uh, also found incidents of extradition, vi extrajudicial violence, uh, including torture or degrading treatment or punishment against the accused. And we found that in Pakistan, uh, Iran, Algeria and Egypt. I have so much more to tell you, but I hear that time is up. Um, I have a lot to tell you on the laws. You know, the good news, the bad news, where there were repeals, where they weren't. Uh, but I wait for your questions and uh, hopefully um, you will have many. Thank you very much. Well, I thank you, Joel. <laughs> I think that's a very good start because it really gives us a sense of the breadth of these issues. And you can bring up those other substantive points uh, during Q&A. I think they'll probably be at a very real interest. And we move to you, Marvi. Thank you very much, Doug. Um, I will begin by thanking Cato Institute to, for, for organizing this very, very important event. And a special thanks to Mustafa, who reached me out and, um, and gave me this opportunity. Thank you very much. Uh, Joel's excellent report and her presentation has, I think, fairly explained the context uh, of the blasphemy laws in the Muslim world. Um, as far as Pakistan is concerned, the, the, the context, uh, the political and the sociological context leading to the creation of uh, blasphemy laws uh, and the problems emerging from the way they were and are implemented, it's very, very complex scenario. And, you know, um, I think too many hours will be uh, you know, will not be uh, enough to describe all of them. So for this, uh, for the sake of this presentation, I'll restrict myself to, uh, to, to, to present to you how these laws are impacting citizens' fundamental uh, rights, fundamental freedoms, uh, especially the right to free speech, uh, right to hold opinions and express those opinions and exercising their freedom to religion and religious expression. Um, more than the law itself, as, uh, as Joel has just uh, explained, the vigilante justice has become a more serious problem, especially in Pakistan. Uh, the law, uh, however, provides basis to such mob justice. And the state institutions keep providing for the for you know for, for their short-term strategic benefits and for the fear of uprising, uh, you know, of the of the extremist uh, elements. And not only the state, the non-state actors like, for example, real estate mafia, and other cartels, the local criminals, and now even the ordinary person on the street feels entitled to, to claim heroeship by expressing intent to violence in the name of protecting profits honor. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, blasphemy vigilantism is not only encouraged in Pakistan, it is actually celebrated. 
if you want to become overnight hero, uh, the easiest way is to to uh, express your intent to kill someone, and you will become a hero. And if you actually kill someone, you are oh God, you are a hero for all times to come. Uh, there are countless examples from uh, from the public, uh, you know, from recent past uh, of people celebrating the killer of, uh, you know, Punjab governor who was assassinated in the name of blasphemy. Uh, the killer uh, was celebrated. Uh, he was garlanded and his, um, his grave is, I mean, he was uh, handed over sentence, and, uh, you know, death sentence by the court and he was, ex was executed. But his grave is now is a shrine uh, and people go there and pay their respects to a killer. And no government, no state institution would dare even condemn that. Um, people will not call, you know, we um, we started calling Salman Tasir Amata a Shaheed. And for calling that, uh, Pakistan's sitting senator uh, presented, you know, submitted table, uh, a resolution in Senate of Pakistan back in 2011, 2012, um, uh, asking the Senate to vote for declaring me a blasphemer so that I could be put in jail and I could be hanged, executed. Um, of course, that, that sort of uh, resolution was defeated. It was, uh, you know, no one wanted to vote on that, but, um, and that is, that is part of Pakistan's parliamentary record. But that can explain how deep the problem is. Uh, the mob was, uh, the mob, ordinary people, they were celebrating um, Mr. Petty's murder, the, the French teacher who was murdered by an 18 years old youngster. Uh, another um, youngster, Mishal Khan in Pakistan, who was a student at the university in Mardan, uh, province. Uh, he was lynched by a mob and it was filmed, but but perpetrators were still, they roamed free. Uh, Tahir Naseem, a US citizen, uh, he was an Ahmadi. He was standing trial under blasphemy laws when he was killed inside the courtroom um, last year, July. His killer was also a teenager. And he also became an overnight hero, received public accolades, garlanded, and uh, actually his uh, picture was circulated with my picture uh, with a caption that her fate should be decided by a hero like this. Um, so so this is the, uh, the situation of the vigilantism, the mob, the mob um, you know, rage and violence. All this while, uh, the liberal sections of civil society just mourn the demise of the rule of law, while the judges who hand over or who even hear the, uh, the cases of the uh, under blasphemy laws, uh, they are under, they are threatened. The lawyers are threatened. In fact, a lawyer who was a dear friend, Rashid Rahman, uh, he was killed in Multan in the precincts of the court while sitting in his office in his chamber uh, because he was hearing the case of Junaid Hafiz, a teacher, a university professor who was accused of blasphemy. And now he has handed the death sentence last year. Uh, politicians, law enforcement officials, human rights activists, you name it, everyone is under this constant uh, you know, we live in this constant environment of fear, knowing we could be targeted next. We could be accused of blasphemy if we keep on expressing our views completely unrelated to religion, but dissenting from the accepted moral code or uh, or the, the the policies of the the state. Um, I'll I'll now in 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 the end. Is is it my time up? No. Um, okay, thank you. So um, I will just uh, highlight just four points here. First of all, the 
religious how the religious expression and the right to religion religious freedom is uh, is negatively impacted by the blasphemy laws um ahmadis christians hindu minorities all these religious minorities that live in pakistan plus now the sectarian minor minorities within the scheme of islam for example shias um they are uh, now increasingly they are being accused of blasphemy just because their religious you know for example shias they 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 have you know in the fiqh they have some different um you know views and some different set of beliefs about the islamic history after the prophet now not about the not about maybe uh, some some of the religious injunctions but about the um uh, the the events uh, that um uh, after the prophet uh and uh, just because of that they are last year uh, over 75 shia people were booked for and now, and now this is a conservative number the shia community claims the number is much more than this these, these are the official figures uh, <coughs> over 75 shia scholars were booked under blasphemy because they were delivering um, we call it majlis they were delivering sermons on the eve of the the martyrdom day of uh, hussein radhiyallahu anhu uh, the grandson of the prophet now this was unprecedented i mean shias have been called uh, apostate or you know excommunicated from islam because of their beliefs but uh, you know barelbis another sect that is uh, that was considered to be closer to shias never did that but now the barelbi sect which is uh, uh, it's you know there is evidence floating around in pakistan that the barelbi the uh, some scholars from the barelvi sect in pakistan are under the influence actually under the control of the military establishment of pakistan so so this entire thing is happening in on in a very very political landscape uh the second is uh, and uh, by the way just yesterday i highlighted a case on twitter um two uh, christian men were booked for blasphemy the crime was they were reciting bible in a quiet corner of a park in lahore the punjab of the punjab city of punjab province now punjab is the biggest province <clears throat> um population wise and lahore is called the heart of punjab or heart of pakistan it's a most populous city of punjab now uh these um uh, one escaped and i was just i just received a, a, an sms a text message from pakistan that the the person who was this, uh, who escaped the scene is also arrested now they don't know their fate they were just reciting bible and the people around the muslims walking around in the park they objected to it and said that it was a crime to preach your religion if you are not a muslim this uh, describes how i mean this can explain is uh, the available religious freedom to the religious minorities and sectarian minorities uh, within the muslim community the second point is um uh the the the, the freedom of expression in political dissent how it is curbed uh everyone who is like myself i do not comment on religion i'm i'm mostly a political commentator and a human rights defender but uh people like us are being uh accused of blasphemy on one pretext or the other because the blasphemy has become uh, you know if if a if a, a state institution wants to kill you they don't want to do it themselves they can just outsource it by accusing you of blasphemy because the mob will do the rest uh, and this has happened in the past with a four famous the bloggers case in pakistan in 2017 when four bloggers were picked up by the intelligence agency in pakistan and um you know the intelligence agencies don't do not have arresting power so then they just abduct because they can and they abducted and then uh, ran a campaign against them that they were blasphemers and they had committed blasphemy now uh and they they were they did not even discuss religion they were all political commentators and were critics criti, uh, critics of the military's policies the third point is um, i'll take just 30 more seconds the third point is the 
it is by using blasphemy laws it is very important to understand how political process is controlled by the military or establishment of the deep state uh, these barelvi groups were in 2017 um uh, you know supported to uh, stage a sit in uh, and to topple to topple the government and their accusation was that the government has passed some law or changed some law that was uh, that that uh, could be interpreted uh, as being Ahmadis being acceptable. Uh, so Ahmadis being excommunicated from Islam called, uh, you know, apostates or whatever. Uh, it is, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, it was not acceptable to anyone in Pakistan, especially the, especially these religious elements. So the sit-in was staged for several days. Islamabad, the capital city, was closed down. It was completely shut down. No business, no official work was, uh, and at the end of it, the um, military, one military general was caught on camera distribution, distributing money among the participants of this uh, sit-in. When a judge, um, uh, you know, uh, issued, um, you know, a judgment uh, on this case against uh, the, the sit-in uh, and eluded in that, uh, in, in his order, that military establishment might be involved in this and uh, it should not be acceptable under a democracy. This judge is being hounded by the state institutions and is uh, every day is being discredited from the public eye. The our parliament is controlled through blasphemy laws even if you touch something or even if you express your opinion to touch something that is not acceptable to military establishment, then that party will be accused of blasphemy. And through blasphemy laws, the entire uh, you know, legislative system is being controlled. Last point, academic freedom. How academic freedom of the teachers is being, you know, a TV angelist in 2017, uh, he came on TV and asked um, the students, all the students of Pakistan, to be vigilant on the teachers if some and make videos of them if some teacher says something that in their opinions is contrary to islam that video should be made viral and the teacher should be booked for blasphemy now this happened in junaid hafiz case and this is happening um, you know you, you you can hear these cases from the remote areas every other day literally every other day uh, so this is how these different shades of personal freedom of the citizens are being controlled and restricted just by using blasphemy laws or blasphemy vigilantism. I'll stop here because my time uh, ended five minutes ago. I think I'm so sorry for taking so much time. Thank you very much. Well, Marvi, we want to thank you again, not only for your contribution to this forum, but what you do under such difficult circumstances, again, it's extraordinary. And for us, it's an honor to have you with us. We very much appreciate what you do on behalf of uh, liberty and human rights in Pakistan. And, and it applies elsewhere in the world. It's a very important fight. So we want to uh, conclude with Mustafa. And you know, if you, you want to bring in how this might apply to Americans, some of our questions, which we'll get to, but there's an interest in how these lessons apply to the United States, Mustafa. So if you have thoughts on that, feel free to bring that in as well. Sure. Um, I mean, thanks to Joel and Marvi for joining us at this Cato Institute Forum. Uh, I mean, Joel's report has been so enlightening. I mean, not just Joel's, but we should also, also of course, be thankful to Jocelyn Getkin Kestenbaum, if I uh, pronounce her name right. She's not with us today, but she co-authored the report, the uh, U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom Report, uh, which I was, you know, reading sadly. And uh, from Marvi, we are hearing about all the concerning details uh, of the scene in Pakistan. Now, as a Muslim who's looking into these issues and as someone who's been thinking about issues of freedom in Islam, uh, this makes me sad and it shows me that we need some work to do. Uh, and I think responsible Muslim clerics, opinion leaders, political leaders, uh, intellectuals have some work to do on this. And there are efforts, of course, for reforming blasphemy laws. A lot of scholars have written important articles. There are movements, there are calls uh, in the Muslim world to uh, getting away with not just blasphemy laws, but any other act of coercion in the name of Islam. That would include apostasy laws, that would include religious policing, let alone other forms of violence. Uh, 
Uh, now, I'll just, therefore, from, I'll say a few things from the Islamic point of view, uh, Doug, if you allow me. First of all, I think we should see here that beyond religion or even beneath religion, there's something else here play, what social scientists call sometimes honor culture. Uh, it refers to a culture when, where one's reputation or values, religious or not, uh, is uh, eagerly protected by force. No wonder, you know, honor culture leads to what we can call secular blasphemy laws. Uh, my home country, Turkey, as you mentioned, is a severe case of that. Uh, since 2014, more than 60,000 people have been prosecuted in Turkey and thousands of them have been given prison sentences for insulting not God or the prophet, but the president. Uh, this may, in fact, be the most severe blasphemy, one of the most severe blasphemy crises in the world right now, if we defer the term blasphemy a bit broadly. Uh, but besides that, besides honor culture, nationalist pride, and all those sort of things that also uh, suppress free speech, there is clearly an issue with understanding of religion and religious values and religious law uh, in the Muslim context. So I'll uh, say a few things about that. And, and I should say that the laws in question, for example, in Pakistan, people sometimes remind that they are left over from the colonial era, which is true technically, but the, those laws, all, most of the laws are in Pakistan or some post-colonial Muslim societies are left over from that era, which is a problem in itself, a grim era in itself. But they have been strengthened and, and they have been made more severe and more definitive with a clearly Islamic ambition to silence blasphemy. Uh, I call Islamic, you know, relatively speaking, of course, not every Muslim would agree with that. Which should bring us to an honest discussion about blasphemy laws within Islam as a religion, within the religious law uh, tradition in Islam, the Sharia and its interpretation by the jurists, the fuqaha. And when we look into that, we will see a clearly grim picture, and that is medieval Islamic jurists uh, considered blasphemy as a capital crime. That is true for the four main Sunni schools and the main Shia school, the Jafari school. They all considered it's a capital crime, sab Allah or sab al-Rasul, which is insult of God and the Prophet, uh, those people who did this should be executed. They just disagreed on whether you know the, uh, the blasphemer can repent or not. It is interesting that they made, uh, they were even harsher on the insult of prophets more than God for an interesting reasoning. They thought uh, because God will punish a blasphemer on his own, he's, he has his ultimate presence, but the prophet is dead and he's gone. We have to protect the prophet on his behalf after he's gone. So those medieval verdicts in Islamic jurisprudence are there. It's death penalty for blasphemers. Not all Muslims are certainly eager to implement these laws. Many Muslims are not even aware of them, but some are. Uh, these are the people that we call Islamists. And uh, Marvi described that scene in Pakistan, how it works as a force in society that even calls on the state. And if the state even doesn't, it does its own. Uh, the the act of punishing blasphemy through violence. So those forces are there because those are they are convicted that this is the Islamic thing to do. It's written in medieval jurisprudence. And a, a small extremist strain within that Islamist universe even believes in implementing this as terrorism in the middle of Europe, which is what we saw in France, unfortunately, in the horrific terrorist attacks there in the past decade. So I believe an honest conversation is needed. And uh, an honest conversation to face these blasphemy laws and to repeal them is needed. And for that, it's a huge topic, which I cover in my forthcoming book, Reopening Muslim Minds. But I'll just here highlight three points. One is that I think Muslims uh, who believe in blasphemy laws should see that these laws appeared in a historical context where everybody had blasphemy laws. I mean, by everybody, I'm referring to especially in, in particular to the Byzantine and Sassanid empires who had similar blasphemy laws. These were the empires that Muslims faced and partly inherited in terms of even their legal notions. 
When you look into Sassanid laws, for example, that ban enmity towards gods, it sounds very similar to some of the things written in the Muslim literature about blasphemy. Uh, and so therefore, when Muslims look into what's written in their jurisprudence books, uh, they should consider that maybe they're not looking into the eternal principles of Islam, but just a bygone archaic era in human history. Second, uh, blasphemy laws are justified through some episodes written in the biographies of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, where we, we hear that some people insulted the Prophet or wrote satirical poets against him, and then they were executed by early Muslims. So this is taken as a precedent to establish blasphemy laws. But if you look into those stories more carefully, which I do in my forthcoming book, you see that the issue there was not mere satire or criticism or insult, but active enmity in terms of physical attacks or incitement to war uh, or at least violence against Muslims. Uh, meanwhile, there are reports that Prophet actually didn't punish who insulted him, but quite the contrary, showed them grace and mercy. And I think that's probably the more uh, universal uh, lesson we should drive from uh, the life of the Prophet. Third, uh, the only undisputed source in Islam, every Muslim would agree with that, is the Quran. And when you look into the Quran on this issue, everybody can see that there is no earthly punishment in the Quran for blasphemy or apostasy, for that matter. Uh, the most relevant verse of the Quran to this issue is verse Nisa 124 or 4124. Uh, which I have referred to in various writings to Muslims, it says, if you hear people denying and ridiculing God's revelation, do not sit with them unless they start to talk of other things. So the verse doesn't say go and attack people if they ridicule Islam. It doesn't even say silence them. It just says do not sit with those people, which means just disengage. I think this can be very well the basis of a proper Muslim response to blasphemy in the modern world. If there are people who criticize Islam, who offend Islam, don't listen to them, don't join their events, or you know, maybe you can boycott them. You, 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 you may stop buying their magazine if you were buying. Uh, but there's no justification really in the Quran for coercion, for violence, for killing people, for jailing people. So... With such, I think, arguments, there needs to be a stronger push in the Muslim world. And also, I think Muslims who are eager to punish blasphemy by force should realize that they're just killing and tormenting innocent people one after another. In Pakistan, most burning case, but other places as well. And by killing and tormenting innocent people in the name of your fate, you're not bringing any honor to your faith. You're just bringing shame. So this is what I think from an Islamic point of view, and this, I, this is what I see as the Islamic antidote to the radicalism in the name of Islam, as we see in this issue. Uh, and, and I think seeing what is happening on the ground should show us, to Muslims who are listening to us in Pakistan or elsewhere, how important this issue is, how much of a problem is stained on the honor of Islam this issue is right now in the world. And uh, here are some of the arguments that we can use to move forward. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mustafa. Uh, very much appreciate that, all of our panelists. I was going to offer some questions, but we've had a lot of very good ones come in. I'll ask our panelists to uh, try to give concise answers because we don't have a lot of time, but a lot of very good questions. What I'll do is I'll throw it to uh, one or another panelist, and if you know anyone else wants to come in, you know, please just let me know. Uh, the first question I want to take uh, is a good one from Sabiha Riemann, and I'm sorry if I've butchered uh, your name on Twitter, asking a very simple one, please define blasphemy. So can I give that to you, Joel? Given the study you've done, how do we define blasphemy? Joel, you need to turn up. Yeah, you're on mute, Joel. So sorry. Apologies for that. We actually have a definition in our report. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you want me to, to read it out to you. I totally can. 
um, it is um, um, it's committing acts of violence in the name of protecting God, religion, and the sacred. Um, we uh, have quite a sort of, um, you know, we have quite a uh, restrictive, you know, uh, um, restrictive definition that you can read yourself in the report. But for example, Mustafa was speaking about, you know, this uh, secular blasphemy, uh, this secular blasphemy law in Turkey, where the insult of the president can uh, can create so much criminalization and so many arrests. And uh, for example, you know, you have the same thing in Thailand, where uh, if you insult the king uh, or the royal family, you can also be prosecuted. Now, all these forms of blasphemy, we, we actually took away. So we're only dealing with insult of the God and the sacred. Um, and uh, you can find our definition in the report itself. But it's a, it's it's a, it's really just linked to, to the to God and the sacred. Well, thank you. Uh, I have a question. Let me give this one to Mustafa. I'm going to combine a couple of questions. One is from Roger Trigg, and another one is anonymous. But basically, the question of how do we balance the issue of free speech, and do we want to put any restraints at all in terms of people's ability to insult? you know, one's faith, to make false statements, to, you know, make kind of charges that uh, both offend people and might be disruptive, might, uh, you know, encourage violence. How do, how do we, you know, kind of balance that? Is it an absolute right or should there be restrictions? And we've had a couple of questions on this. Well, I mean, this is a, a very good question. And I think this is a question for not just Muslims, but anybody, of course, any, any country and, and any civilization. And I think there are better criteria in the world established. I think U.S. Uh, First Amendment uh, law, uh, principles and, and the laws built upon them and the Supreme Court uh, decisions uh, have established a good principle. That is, incitement to violence is a crime, but offense, insult, uh, is not. And uh, I think that is the right standard, because if you... If you say, well, certain kind of insult should be a crime, where do you, insult is, where, where do you stop that? Because insult is very much a matter of perception. I mean, uh, Marvi uh, pointed out to a very good example. Uh, if you're Christian and if you read the Bible in the middle of uh, a Pakistani city, some things in the Bible where, for example, I mean, the New Testament where Jesus is, for example, defined as divine son of God, will sound offensive to Muslims. They will say, oh my God, this is a heretical speech. This is actually insulting our religion. Even forget that. Think of Shia versus Sunni. As Marvi again reminded, Shia Muslims are being persecuted and targeted in Pakistan in the name of blasphemy laws because some of the things that Shia Muslims believe about early Islam, about the companions of the Prophet, are blasphemous from a Sunni point of view. And if you take those Sunnis and, you know, some things they will say will be blasphemous in a Shia environment. So there is no end to trying to manage the sensibilities. And I'm not saying this as someone who thinks that people should blaspheme and it's a good thing. No, I think for social harmony, it's good if people are careful in their language in a respectful way. And I think that's a more constructive approach to society. Uh, but if you start to criminalize this, it will, it might come to Pakistani levels. I mean, which are very concerning. Uh, therefore, uh, and I and I also one more thing to move forward within the Muslim world on these issues. One thing that has to be done is to be in the Western world more principled on the on those issues. I generally appreciate the U.S. standards on free speech, but regarding France, when I, I've written recently uh, an article uh, which touches upon this, uh, it's an insult in France to, uh, it's, it's a crime in France to uh, insult the flag or the national anthem. And typically Muslims who defend blasphemy laws show these things saying that you see, actually you have these laws in Western societies. So I think we should ha uh, raise the level of free speech within Western societies. And I think probably U.S. standards are not bad. 
but in Europe, maybe we need to hire free speech so we can make the same argument on the same principle. Uh, and one thing here is that you cannot tell to people that, you know, religious sensibilities can be insulted. It's not a big deal, but national sensibilities cannot be. No, that's that's not going to work. People have different sacrednesses and you cannot ask them to give up one while protecting the other one. Uh, so that's what I can say on that question. Hope this makes sense. Well, thank you. Marvi, would you uh, like to get on on this, uh, your short comment? Yeah, I uh, I think basically I'm just uncomfortable with the concept of blasphemy. Uh, as Mustafa already said, it's quite subjective. Insult to religion or insult to any holy personage or a sacred text is um, it's, it's a matter of disagreement. It's a matter of very personal kind of interpretations uh, and uh, very personal kind of concept of what do you consider insult. And I think um, if a religion is, um, you know, if, if the divinity is being insulted, don't you think divinity is um, powerful enough to protect itself? And I think uh, the blasphemers are the people who think they can protect the honor of the prophet. I mean, a prophet doesn't depend depend on you. On I mean, divinity does not depend on you to protect itself. So, um, so so my view is quite dispassionate about uh, about this. Um, if if your sensibilities uh, are heard that easily, it means that you need to do something about your sensibilities rather than killing people around. Joel, would you like to you know, say something as well? With everything that was said, everybody, uh, you know, I can. Oh goodness! You're okay now. Can you hear me now? Can you? Yeah, hear we me? hear you. Wonderful. Yes. yes. No. Of course, I agree with everything that was said. Obviously, you know, I could say exactly the same thing to Doug, Mustafa, and Marvi. And uh, they, the three of them on this panel will be uh, differently insulted. They will be insulted. One might not be feel at all insulted. One might feel very insulted. One might feel, you know, indifferent. So it's just, you know, I think what it's, it's important to also um, remember that debate allows a society to breathe intellectually. That many intellectuals, when they start you know, challenging ideas in the world. And, you know, we can also, of, of course, refer to religious figures as well. Um, many are, uh, you know, are against the mainstream thinking. And so for a society to breathe intellectually, to breathe culturally, uh, to thrive democratically, it's important uh, to have a bit of um, resilience and to be able to uh, not, of course, uh, suffer from incitement to hatred or, or incitement to violence, but uh, just, you know, feel sometimes a bit, of, a bit offended because it sharpens your arguments as well in a society. So from an, even from an intellectual point of view, and a religious point of view, uh, sometimes the mainstream is often contested at first. I'm so sorry. We have so many good questions and we're running out of time. We're down to about five minutes left. Uh, Feminists for Liberty on Twitter asks, to what degree do these anti-blasphemy laws overlap with gender-based violence? And is there you know, uh, kind of, are there different prosecution rates? Is there yeah, I mean, how how does how does this uh, you know come together? So if I can go to you, uh, you know, Joel first, and then uh, to Marvi. Sure. Actually, one of the questions that we were wondering was: um, were males or females accused more frequently of blasphemy? And uh, it, we were uh, actually quite surprised because eighty four percent of uh, the victims that we uh, covered are male, uh, which makes, you know, 15, 16% uh, being female. So we were actually, you know, uh, it was a finding. We, maybe it would be more interesting to delve into this. Uh, is it because, uh, you know, men in society are more visible? Uh, uh, but of course this doesn't, you know, exclude uh, uh, many different women who have been at the forefront of, uh, of blasphemy allegations, I think of Asya Bibi in Pakistan and and many others. Uh, women have suffered as well, but 
according to our statistics, uh, uh, the larger majority are, are male. Just to a couple of minutes. Should I go ahead? Yes, please. Yeah, so uh, I, I would agree with Joel, you know, in, in the specific context of Pakistan, for example, it is claimed um, by the larger society that being an Eastern and being an Islamic society, we are more respectful towards women. Um, although uh, the practice says otherwise, but uh, this is at least claimed. And um, you know, I would agree with, with with what Joel said. If you if we look at the cases of blasphemy accusations, there are not many uh, as compared to the men. Um, Asya Bibi was a shocker. I mean, Asya Bibi actually shocked us all. A woman handed over death sentence. I mean, she was uh, she was accused, and then a local court actually sentenced her to death, and that was a big shock in Pakistani society. But now it is uh, even this is getting common. You know, uh, the uh, the other day, Mustafa mentioned a case uh, uh, of a, of a nurse of a, of a woman a nurse uh, who was accused of blasphemy and who was being beaten up by another woman. So, uh, did they, if there is a gender, I think it's, there's a class dimension to it more than gender dimension. Uh, if you look at the cases of the blasphemy accused. Um, I, I don't have exact numbers, but I can say that 80 to 90 percent would be from the lower middle classes, the lower classes. Um, so that and and um, uh, the religious minorities. I mean, not only the um, Muslim, uh, non-Muslim minority, but the uh, you know within Islam, Shias, Ahmadis, uh, even in some cases Barelvis, etc. And most of them are men. And Mustafa, we have just a couple minutes left. Let me ask you a question that's come in from Kat on Twitter. Can you compare and contrast laws that enforce religion, such as anti-blasphemy laws, with laws that limit religion, such as the French hijab bans or Chinese anti-Uyghur genocide? Could you tie those? To, again, just a couple of minutes left. I wish we had more time. Well, they are all intrusions in individual lives and or the expressions of individuals. Of course, France is a liberal democracy. I cannot compare. Uh, but I have been critical of some of the illiberal laws in France, including the hijab, which is the headscarf ban. Uh, I think forcing a Muslim woman to put on a headscarf as they do it in Iran or Saudi Arabia is very authoritarian and unacceptable. Forcing a woman to take it off not in the streets in France, but uh, in, in schools or in public offices, if they are a government official, that's wrong as well. And there are now people in France for calling for broader you know, headscarf ban, which would be unacceptable. That's why I'm saying to help advance freedom in countries that have very high level, low levels of freedom, we should raise the bar in the Western society as well. And France would be an example there. China is a whole different story. That's a totalitarian regime. I mean, and, and I think the campaign against Uyghurs is, can be called genocide now because of all the forced sterilizations and abortions. And But China shows that when offensive speech, I mean, Muslims are also being prosecuted for offensive speech, whatever they, whatever they say publicly about their religion, which offends the Communist Party of China. So, which is a lesson for Muslims to think that well, if we think that offensive words, speeches, world values should be punished by us when we have the majority, think what happens when we are a minority repressed by an authoritarian majority. So I think there is a good lesson there to defend freedom everywhere, whether you're a minority which is suffering from authoritarianism or whether you're a majority which thinks authoritarianism is fine. Well, thank you so much, as I indicated. We have an enormous number of very good questions here. Uh, I want to uh, point out again that Joelle's report is on the Cato website. 
Uh, you can also uh, get it. Uh, I also want to recognize the U.S. Commission on uh, International Religious Freedom. They had a hearing on this topic back in December. I think it was December 9. Joelle spoke at that, as well as her uh, co-author as, and a number of other activists and uh, analysts. You know, I recommend that as well if you're interested in this. I want to thank everyone who's come to watch this. It really is a very important topic. Very much thank our panelists. I think an extraordinary you know, group of people who've done uh, incredible work on this. And I want to thank, you know, as any of these, we have people behind the scenes who actually make it all happen. Uh, Kiana Graham and David Tassi have been very active, you know, sending me messages and making sure that the, the program has gone on. And of course, we have our conference department and others who've also been you know, very helpful. They uh, you know, really make this stuff go. We're just the front people for it. Uh, the video has been recorded. It'll be edited a little and put up on the site uh, either by late today or tomorrow. So if you want to watch it again or if you want to recommend it to somebody, we uh, certainly you know, wish you would do so. So again, I want to thank you all and uh, you know, wish you a very good day.